What's up, MJ fam, music lovers, and faithful listeners and subscribers of the Black Jackson Estate Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Black Jackson Estate Podcast. This is user one, and I am absolutely honored to introduce today's episode. Today's episode is very special because today marks 13 years since the death of Michael Jackson. In the years since Michael's passing, his legacy has been affirmed by many, subject to attack by some, and debated repeatedly. But without question, Michael Jackson remains the most popular musician, entertainer, and creator in modern times. His influence stretches across all genres of music and countless other art forms. To celebrate his unmatched influence on the culture and the world, we wanted to share with you our conversation with Steve Knopper, author of MJ, The Genius of Michael Jackson. User 2 and I had a chance to chop it up with Steve about his writing and research process for his book and his views on the incredible life and career of Michael Jackson. We hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. We want to give a very big thank you to Steve Knopper, who generously shared his time and insights. If you guys don't have a copy of his book, we highly recommend you going out right now, pause this podcast and go buy a copy. You can find it online at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and pretty much anywhere books and audiobooks are sold. You will not regret reading this book and getting his take on Michael Jackson and his life and career. And before you guys go, don't forget to subscribe to the Black Jackson Estate Patreon, where we share exclusive content and early listens to new episodes of the show. You can also donate to the Black Jackson Estate podcast on PayPal and Cash App and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We seriously appreciate all of you guys and all the love and support that you show us in our show because we couldn't do this thing without you. So without further delay, here's our interview with the author of MJ, the genius of Michael Jackson, Mr. Steve Knopper. My name is Steve Knopper. Um, I'm here because I wrote a book in 2015 called MJ, The Genius of Michael Jackson. At the time, I was, and for many years, I was a Rolling Stone magazine contributing editor. I'm no longer with Rolling Stone. I'm currently editor-at-large with Billboard magazine. But I've written other books, and I've been basically a music journalist for like 30 years. And I've written for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and GQ and uh, lots, lots of other places. So, um, yeah, that's me. I live in Denver, Colorado. Awesome. And Steve, are you born and raised? Are you a Coloradan? Is it Coloradian? Coloradan? <laughs> Coloradan. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's Coloradan actually. Um, I moved from, uh, I was, I was born in Livonia, Michigan and grew up there, lived there till I was 13. Um, and then, uh, my parents moved to Boulder, Colorado, uh, at that point because they wanted to be hippies and they failed. (laughs) They had to try though, right? It was the time to try at least to be a hippie. My dad bought a bolo tie and he he wore it until my mom told him to stop. So you said you've been in the music game for about 30 years. When you look back, uh, talking about Michael Jackson, what's the first song you remember hearing and what was your impression of this artist? Oh yeah. Um, I mean, Obviously, so I'm in my early 50s, and so Michael Jackson was huge when I, he was at his peak of popularity when I was in high school. So, you know, of course, I remember Beat It and Billie Jean and, you know, all, all the songs from Thriller. Those were the ones that were kind of taking off when I, when I was first becoming aware of him. 
which was admittedly late. And I'm, I'm going to be completely honest, like when I was in high school and I was just starting to sort of develop a musical identity, I was not into Michael Jackson. Like I was into classic rock. I was into like yeah. white guy, suburban rock. I, I liked Led Zeppelin and the who and Bruce Springsteen and stuff. Def like Leppard. Uh, I didn't know. I mean, Def Leppard was too pop for me. Like I yeah, was really, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, I've since disclaimed all that stuff. I mean, I still like it, but I've, I've sort of like written about how, like I, I've, uh, I, I'm no longer, you know, stuck in that mode, but I, I yeah. was sort of like the kid who was completely intolerable, who would just say music isn't good anymore. Like it's, it's not as good as it was in the sixties, you know? And, but it, so it wasn't until a few years later, really when I started to be a professional music writer that, um, you know, I said, you know, I really should listen to Thriller in more depth rather than just, you know, hearing these songs on the radio. Mm -hmm. And when I did, you know, I was in my probably late teens, early twenties, I was kind of like belatedly had the reaction everyone has, which is holy shit. Like <laughs> what have I been missing here? You know, yeah. and that opened a lot of doors for other stuff too. Given that background and given how you kind of, like you said, so in your formative years, you come about thrillers like the thing. Everybody's listening to it, whether you like the guy or knew what everybody's listening to this. And that kind of gives you your base introduction to Michael. And then you continue on. You have this great career contributing and, and offering your thoughts and ideas about music, popular music and different artists. What brought you to the place of saying, I feel that a book about Michael Jackson, I have something to contribute to this topic that hasn't already been contributed. And I want to do this. How did you get to that place? Well, there, there was a professional reason and a personal reason. Um, the, the personal reason I'll, I'll tell first, which is that um, around the time uh, Michael Jackson died, my daughter was, I have one daughter, her name is Rose, and she was seven. And she had just gone through this intensive Michael Jackson phase. Like we listened to going back to Indiana 400 times a day, you know, like little kids do. And, you know, it was just, we couldn't listen to anything else. It drove us crazy. And, and that sort of led us to, well, you know, and YouTube was still pretty new at that point. It was sort of like, well, let's see what else there is on Michael Jackson on YouTube, you know, yeah. and it was, holy shit. You know? <laughs> and that's when I sort of started watching. I mean, of course I'd seen the uh, famous moon, moonwalk performance at Motown 25 before, but when I was with my daughter, you know, we started watching that thing over and over and over again and pausing it and kind of going, how did he put his leg like that? You mm -hmm. know, how, did, how did he move in that particular? And you could stop it. I mean, it, it seems, you know, not that big of a deal now, but at that time it was sort of like, wow, you can stop this video and see frame by frame how he does this. So, so that was a personal reason that got me very interested in Michael, um, even more so than I had been. And then professionally, I had just finished a book called Appetite for Self-Destruction, The Spe Spectacular Crash of the Record Industry in the Digital Age. Mm -hmm. And that was about the music business and how it sort of was, was destroyed by Napster and the internet and MP3s and piracy and so forth. But I decided to start that book in 1979 when there was an earlier recession in the music business. And I wrote a chapter about how there were three things that saved the music business. One was MTV. The other was the adoption of CDs, which was fit the theme of the book. And of course, the final thing was the release of Thriller, which was sort of the, the rising tide that lifted all the boats, if you will. You know, it was, it was the album that sort of pulled the, the entire record business out of its malaise. And so I did a lot of reporting on, the, on that release at the time. And I talked to a bunch of people in Michael Jackson land before Michael had passed. Frank DeLeo, his manager, I had several conversations with him. 
and and other people. And then when it came time, when after Michael passed, sadly, I didn't want to write a quickie book about him. You know that mm-hmm. there were too many of those already. But a few years later, I kind of went, you know, I, I have some information in my notes that could transition to a biography of Michael. And at the time, there really wasn't a, a narrative, like a, a book you could read that wasn't sort of organized as an album guide or something that was about his music. Like you had J. Randy Tarborelli's book and you had other books um, that were narrative and were dramatic, but there was nothing that was like, like I went through that book. It's long. Yeah. Yeah. It's very long. Yeah. Yeah. And there was like, there would be 20 pages on, on his nose and there would be like half a page on the moonwalk or half a page on how, you know, thriller came together. And I sort of felt like that, that record needed to be corrected. Um, because what I was interested about Michael, what I was interested in about Michael was the music. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I felt there were other people like that too. And I, I'm a, you know, as a music journalist for many years, as you said, I love great music biographies. I love books by, you know, Peter Goralnik and, and Nelson George and, you know, on and on and on. And I, I felt like there wasn't the kind of Michael Jackson book out there that I wanted to read. So I thought, well, maybe I could try to write that kind of book. Uh, what I really liked about your book was what you you took the time to talk about how, um, you know, there are multiple versions of, of events. And that was one thing we talked about in just discussing your book, like how important it is to say that, because we can all be in the same room experiencing the same thing, you know, and come out with different stories in variation. But the the substantial parts, the important parts, the material parts are generally the same, you know. And so I liked how you took the time to piece together different things and say, hey, um, you know, Barry Gordy says it happened this way. Someone else said it happened this way. But here's the here's the here's the bottom line. This happened. They went, they had this interview. It was phenomenal, you know? And so I think that you definitely, you know, you filled a space that needed to be filled in Michael Jackson's story. And honestly, I don't think looking at the things that have been written since anyone has come close or there are some, actually some fans who've written some really great books and but it's very few who have like you said focused in on the thing that is enduring for Michael, which is his talent and what he gave to the world as an entertainer. Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, the reason I, I do a lot of interviews for these books and, and um, you know, I throw around the number. I actually did interview like 450 people for this book. Um, and and that's because I'm nervous. <laughs> like I, I get scared that I'm not going to cover all the bases. So I just talk to more yep. and more people and then it becomes an addiction. You know, then it's kind of like, yeah. I need to know how do I confirm what perfume Michael or what cologne Michael wore? You know? <laughs> what was he wearing? Yeah. And just to pivot off of that, you, because we had this down, you took three years to write this book. You did interview 450 people. I want you to tell the folks who are listening to our podcast right now, how many people you paid for an interview? Zero. Zero. And that's so important uh, because in the Michael community, you know, there's so many people who are skeptical of everybody because so many people have a financial motive. You eliminated, you cut that off at the kneecap. Nobody got paid. Some people asked for money. Nobody got paid. That's right. Although I should qualify that Ronnie Rancifer, um, I met him in Hammond, Indiana at uh, the Elks Lodge mm-hmm. and I did buy him a beer and possibly. Two. <laughs> do you Do remember you pe- what kind of beer that was? Because I would really. <laughs> I like want it was like a Bud or a Bud Light kind of beer, but I can't remember exactly. So we, we love were both it. On the good. Same page with that, we were both like, yeah, let's just have a Bud. 
Right. A $3 beer. Right. And it's like, you know, so that makes a big difference that gave your book the weight for me that I needed to say, not only your background to say, okay, this is serious. You might not agree with what everyone's perception is or what everyone has to say, but this is a serious author writing a serious book about this topic. Thank you. I appreciate your saying that. I mean, that was certainly my goal. Yes, Steve, I think um, we are so excited to unpack your perspective. Um, I think it's really important, first of all, that I mention we have a regular segment called Billboard Trivia, um, where we go over Michael Facts um, as they're relevant to us throughout the year. And so just know we're big fans. Okay. Billboard stats and the work you guys are doing over there. Um, so I, I'm interested in your perspective coming into this book. So we talked a bit about the type of music that you typically listen to and then um, your journey as a journalist. So what rumors had you heard up until the point where you're getting ready to, to research this book and you're like, OK, these are things that like I might be able to prove debunk resolve like what are like one or two big things that you kind of walked in and walked out with um and like how your perspective may have changed or evolved or or things that you learned along the way that you just were like I gotta know yeah that's a really good question you know the 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 one thing that I really got obsessed with and maybe this is kind of an obvious answer to your question is sort of did Michael invent the moonwalk um I really really was fascinated with that question and, and I started out like for the proposal talking to dance experts and choreographers who, who actually I kind of feel like became the heart of the book in the way, in a way, like I got, I, I'm, not, I'm not really a dancer myself other than sort of wriggling around, you know, but uh, I, I really got involved and in down the rabbit hole of talking to choreographers about like, how did he do each one of those moves? How did he put all that stuff together? And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of rumors going around that Michael stole the moonwalk. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, you know, and, and then there's other rumors that just said he invented it out of thin air, you know, and I think the truth is in the middle. And that's what I discovered upon doing the book, which is that just like, you know, rock and rollers covered blues songs, you know, Michael would take all these different influences and put them together into the moonwalk. And there, you know, at the time I wrote this, you've, I'm sure you've seen them all. You guys, for, for sure, I know have, have are intimate with these kinds of videos, but like, you know, there's YouTube videos that kind of show the evolution and they'll show, you know, Mr. Bojangles and the Nicholas brothers and on and on and on. Right. Um, James Brown and all these people. And I wanted to sort of find out what, what people actually did specifically influence the moonwalk. And so I looked at a lot of what Michael had to say. And then I talked to these choreographers and they led me to all different sources. And then there's this other story of um, of the the two uh, kids at the time who were sort of like young break dancers, and they had been performing a variation on the moonwalk, and and Michael hired them to um, or or I don't I can't remember if he paid them, but but he brought them in to sort of teach him the whole idea of the backslide, which is the the core, the heart of the moonwalk, which is sort of like walking backwards and making it seem like you're walking forwards. Um, and, and that was kind of the, the, the click. Um, anyway, I could go on and on about the moonwalk, moonwalk, but the one other thing I want to say about it is that I also really geeked out on the robot move, which is <laughs> a move that he, as again, I'm sure, you know, he did earlier um, with the Jackson five as part of dancing machine. And there's like 
a million videos because the Jackson Five were so famous. They were on all the TV shows. So if you if you look up Jackson Five, you know, TV variety show robot, you'll see Michael doing extraordinary moves when he was much younger than he was for Motown 25. Um, and and to me, I, I had this thesis that the ro- once he mastered the robot, which was not his move, he was able to use that as a bridge to get to more interesting dance moves like the moonwalk a few years later. Um, and, and once I came up with that revelation about the dance, I floated that by every choreographer I spoke to. Um, and, and uh, you know, a lot of them verified that. And, and that was super fun. I think the most fun I had writing this book was getting into how the, the physical dance moves evolved. That's so I don't so... know if that your question. It's not, it's not really like a salacious rumor, but it was no, Absolutely. That's exactly what we're looking for. Like that is um, uh, Nikki and I were actually talking about that um, a little bit earlier. And I wondered if you peeped the way that Michael moved almost seamlessly between pop and hip hop, because a lot of those moves he took from break dancers and just elongated them and made them something that we had never seen. Um, but I often wonder if folks peep just how much Michael pulled from hip hop in his early days and put into this like pop legend of, of his, his uh, most prolific dance moves. Yeah. I mean, he was really influenced by hip hop in general um, and was throughout his career. You can hear it in, in a lot of the music. Um, I think when like, like around thriller and around the moonwalk time, I'm not sure I would say he was specifically influenced by hip hop dancing. I don't even know if they really called it that at the time, but it was more sort of like what the electric boogaloos had been doing and popping and locking and the soul train dancing, which had been going on, you know, since really the late sixties, like from the sixties through the time he was doing that stuff, which was kind of the early eighties. And, and of course uh, it's hard to say it's sort of, as you know, you know, like what evolved into what and what turned into hip hop and what turned into break dancing and what turned into Michael Jackson. Uh, who's in his own category of dance, but I think it was all sort of evolving at the same time. Right. I I like to think of Michael as like the perfect uh, synergy of hip hop and pop, because even the way he composed songs, you dug into how um, he would dictate that music. And he was basically beatboxing. And I don't even know if Michael was identifying that as beatboxing in the way that rappers would um, when they're composing their rhymes, but very similar. And you kind of pulled some of those themes out of uh, out in your book. So it's so good to hear that that those were big themes you wanted to crack open. Thank you for saying that. And I think that's a really insightful point about Michael's vocal beatboxing and how that influenced hip hop. Um, I think that's really important. I agree. What's kind of cool is you, I think that was one of my favorite parts of the book, how you really dug into the dance. It, it, when you said that, I thought of what you said earlier with, I just wanted to make sure I interviewed enough people so I got it right. And you definitely did when it came into this not just the interviews, the research into the dance to go beforehand. When I was in undergrad, I was an uh, African-American studies minor. I had a professor who showed us uh, the guy, I think it's Bill Bailey. Dude, he's Michael Jackson. Let me tell you, Michael Jackson didn't invent the Milwaukee. And I'm going to show you. And he showed it to the class. And it's like, wow, like there really is something that came before. Whereas I think at that point, you really did still... I did think at least anyway, that it was primarily a dance he had created, but really he was building off of other dancers and he knew that he was incorporating their creativity. And 
Um, it also makes me think about how this year is the 50th year of Soul Train and how Soul Train was such a staple in Black houses. My mom talks about how they had to watch Soul Train. She was like, we have four channels. You know, you knew what was coming on and Soul Train would come on on Saturday. I mean, you know, you move the furniture and you dance, but it wasn't just regular Black folks. It was Michael Jackson also ingesting these this talent uh, that was showing on TV and then incorporating it into his own style and what he was doing. Absolutely. And I'm I'm so glad to I like I love talking about this. And as you can imagine, when I do interviews about the book, it's not what all all the interviewers want to talk about. So I'm I'm this is this is really fun for me. Um, but I I got so into the Soul Train dancing and how it influenced Michael, because unlike um people who were watching Soul Train, like Michael was actually appearing on Soul Train. So he was able, he and, and his brothers too, and, and they were able to sort of go, hey, Demita Joe Freeman. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. Yeah. And you teach us this move or that move. And there were several, mm-hmm. you know, Charles Washington was the guy who sort of is credited with with uh, with inventing the robot. And there there were several soul trained dancers that that I mean, Michael's brothers, to an extent, were part of this. But really, it was Michael who was zooming in on sort of teach me this move. And and some I, I talked to Demita Joe Freeman and, and she she talked about sessions she had with him that were mm-hmm. really fruitful for him. And then there's another element, too. And I'm kind of proud of this in the book which is mime influence, Michael, yeah. you know, years later, he would talk about Marcel Marceau, but he was watching Shields and Yarnell, you know, which was the, this, you know, kind of like the seventies mime duo that was on all the TV variety shows. And they were kind of cheesy at the time, but they had this, um, they had this, this ongoing theme that was sort of like the robot and Michael befriended Robert Shields of Shields and Yarnell. And, and he went to his house and learn stuff from him directly that way. So, you know, Michael had no boundaries. He he wanted to learn and he would go, it didn't, it black or white, honestly, like the song says, it didn't matter to him. He would go to, you know, James Brown and then he would go to Fred Astaire. He was such a student. I think that came through very clearly in your book, how much of a student he was of all these artists that he found influential that he wanted to incorporate. And he never wholesale just stole from people. It was, it really was an incorporation and then an advancement of the things he was seeing and appreciating in other artists. And um, I think that came through really clear in your book. Like he was such a student, he would study people in such a way that you don't really hear about like Beyonce or, you know, there are very few artists that you hear about being such students of others in order to advance themselves in their craft. Yeah. I mean, he was like a sponge, you know, and, and I have to be careful when I talk about this, like, and, and other, I'm sure you've gotten this too. And other people who write about Michael Jackson, which is that, you know, he, he did have sort of what I think I said in the book was perfect pitch for dancing. Like, like he could see someone do a move once or twice on stage, even a really complicated one, like going back to his childhood with the Jackson five, he'd be at the Apollo theater and he'd see Jackie Wilson on stage and the next moment he could just master the move that he just saw. And so I reported that. I think it's true. But there's also an element of sort of he also worked really hard. On yeah. And he would work long hours into the night. And, you know, there's these famous stories about him sort of being in a hotel on the road and somebody staying in the room below him and having to hear him like bouncing up and down, working on his dance moves well into the right. night. You know, I mean, Michael worked it really, really hard. And that's a really important segment to talk about. Um, I, I think maybe I didn't talk about that part of it explicitly enough in the book because I thought it was sort of apparent. 
It you would think so, but I, then I think it goes back to the thing you just said. Some people saw he was such an innate talent and could see something that maybe they thought it didn't take a lot of work, but actually he spent a lot of time working to perfect everything he did. That's right. And I think it was a combination of those things. I mean, it was a obviously sort of once in a, in a millennium talent, once in a century talent is, is certainly important to this and instinct and all that stuff. But, um, you know, you combine that with his openness to learn from various sources um, which all the all the geniuses of art and other media do, you know, and then you combine it with hard work, which he had a he had a a work ethic um, that was his own and that he got from his father and his family. Yeah, and we're going to definitely explore some of those topics a little further down. I think I really know our listeners are going to enjoy just hearing how you put this book together and those different thoughts you have about his talent and how he came to be this sort of consummate entertainer. In 2012, you said you made a list. I got this off your Facebook. I told you I went deep. Um, in, 2000, <laughs> in 2012, you said you made a list of all the people you'd hoped to interview. What were some of the names on that list that you were not able to convince to talk to you? And what were some of the names that you were like, thank God they yeah. talked to me? Yeah. 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 Good question. Um, well, the, the first list is easier to, to bring to mind. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, you probably noticed this from the book, but none of the Jacksons talked to me. Um, I did talk to some uncles and some cousins and nephews and, and people like that, but you know, Jermaine, Marlon, Jackie, and the rest didn't want anything to do with the book. Um, they don't want anything to do with pretty much any book unless it's sort of their own project. Quincy Jones, I tried really hard, didn't, didn't, was not able to, to get hold of him. And then, you know, I, I could go on. There, there were others too. Who did I talk to that I was proud of? The people that I was especially proud of talking to, um, I mean, like, like there were some important people that I talked to, like Bruce Swedeen talked to me, mm-hmm. um, a longtime engineer that were, who worked with Michael. And I talked to him probably four or five times. Um, he was great. My method for this was to pick up all the old Michael albums and um, look through the liner notes. You've probably seen liner notes to especially the later Michael Jackson albums, but there are hundreds and hundreds of names on that. Michael liked to credit people and thank people. And I would just go through the liner notes and just call everybody. It was a pretty laborious process. (laughs) Um, So sometimes I would wind up with, you know, people who'd never said yes before. One person I was especially proud of was uh, Susie Aketa, who was mm-hmm. a Motown creative yeah. liaison who had been an artist herself at Motown um, and worked, you know, but but she wasn't she felt she wasn't really going anywhere. You know, she was one of those kind of forgotten people at Motown. There were a lot of them. but she had this relationship with Barry Gordy and he kind of put her in this position where she, she was a young woman at the time and she she had a way of communicating with the Jacksons. And particularly Michael. So, you know, when 10 or 11 year old Michael was in the studio with all these grownups, um, you know, and and not 100 percent being able to relate to his brothers who were maybe not seeing the things or hearing the things that he heard, he could turn to Susie and she could say she would enable him. She would say, you know, OK, you're right about that. And then mm-hmm. she would kind of tell him the deal at Motown, like, well, you can't get away with that but you can get away with this if you do it this way. And so she became kind of an important figure. That was my favorite part of the book, to be honest. We talked a bit about Susie um, in another episode where we kind of unpacked Michael's early solo work at Motown. And her perspective is just so valuable because she literally has the apple crate 
the guy was standing on. Like she, <laughs> she crafted his whole little baby attitude. And it's so fascinating um, how they kind of negotiated that growth. Yeah. I just, you know, if you're interested, maybe you've seen this, but a few months ago, um, I interviewed her and did a profile of her, not so much about Michael, although he's mentioned for Billboard. Um, so she, I'm really a fan of hers. I think she's a really important by design kind of forgotten figure in the music business. She's very almost reclusive. She's very difficult to reach, um, on purpose. So she, she kind of comes out of her, her, uh, her hermit existence in the public and, and does an interview now and then. And so I, I would, uh, we happened to bond on the phone and, um, and that was, that was super fun doing this book. Steve, a quick question. Um, cause I don't remember. Did you talk to Suzanne DePass? I knew you you mentioned her, uh, you know, obviously in those years, those Motown years, but did you actually get to talk to her? And were you piecing together other sources where she kind of told some of her story? No, I did not talk to Suzanne. Um, and and I was piecing it together from others. And, and you know, I have a, I mean, I think you know this, but I have a pretty extensive notes where I attribute everything. So, so there were a number of books about MJ already already written before you got to uh, your book and since have been so many, but each author goes in trying to accomplish their perspective and their thing. So what did you go into this process thinking you wanted to accomplish and what was going to set your book apart from the rest? And do you feel like you were successful in doing that? I wanted to accomplish, I hope this isn't too weaselly of an answer, but going into it, I wanted to accomplish writing about Michael without an agenda, without any kind of sort of, I'm going to get this guy, you know, I'm going to nail, nail this guy down on X, Y, or Z thing. And, and secondly, I knew I wanted to, I did have one agenda, which is the assumption that he was a genius. And I wanted to support that and, and sort of explain with lots of examples and say why. And I wanted it to focus on music, dance, and performance. I felt reading, I mean, I read pretty much all the books that had come out before. And I, and I did, when I was writing it, I got a lot of sort of, why do we need another book about Michael Jackson? And I would have to say, well, we haven't had a narrative book about the music. And people would go, yeah, okay, that makes sense. makes sense. And I was sort of like, well, why do you love Michael Jackson in the first place? Because I heard, don't stop till you get enough when I was 10 yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I, those are the people I wanted to write it for. And I felt like other books kind of were, were like, they had an agenda. They wanted to crack the code, the mystery of why he did so much facial surgery, or was he a child molester or various things. And I wanted to get into that stuff, but I wanted to be persuaded. I wanted to let the facts take me, uh, you know, to, to whatever conclusions I came to to the extent that I could do that, because, you know, it's some of it's pretty impossible. He's, he lived, lived a mysterious life in a lot of ways. And I think some secrets will never be explained. So that was frustrating for me and, and other Michael biographers. Um, but, but my goal was to just make it a research project and make the research persuade me. We think you were successful in doing that. So thank you for taking that approach. Now, I got to ask, listening to the first couple chapters of this book, the we talk a lot about the Jackson's narrative and uh, their uh, out of Gary experience and how that became such a big part of their narrative. I got to ask, Steve, have you watched the Jackson's in American Dream? Yes, I have. Watched. All of it? Uh, well, wait, are we talking about the, um, 
the biopic that came out, you know, whenever it was 20, 20 some years ago. Or, or Yes, we're talking about I think that was the 1992 ABC production. Yeah. Yeah, I believe I watched all of it. Unless I mean, I don't remember it being. It's it's like two or three hours, right? Like five. <laughs> yes, more like five or six. Steve. It's pretty long. It. Honestly, I don't remember it being five or six. So maybe I watched some kind of shortened version. But I did watch. I did. I remember being influenced by some of that. Yeah. Cool. Cool. I had because the, the Jacksons were really involved with that one. I think right. so. Yeah, I think Jermaine's ex-wife, or I don't know if they were officially or it was common law, or whatever. She was involved. <laughs> she was she involved. The book, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's the yeah, one that wrote I just, the book. Yeah. I just ordered an actual copy of that book. It's still, there's still very limited copies of it. That book is wild. I think I got it like I got it a long time ago. I was probably in high school, ninth or tenth grade when I got it. And it was just the drama, you know, of it. Uh, but yeah, she was, you know, heavily involved in that. I think she was the executive yeah. producer. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it's, it's quite long and I think it supports what you said earlier. None of the brothers wanted to talk to you. They kind of stick to their own projects, uh, right. which I think is a disservice to their, the legacy they will leave when they are no longer here because if you're only telling the story from your voice uh, and you don't give someone else an opportunity to explore maybe some nuance, it becomes less convincing, I think, in some ways, you know, just your story becomes less convincing because it's just you. It's not really a self-critique. So I, it's interesting. I I don't think I'm shocked that Jermaine didn't talk. I'm not shocked that none of them talked to you. I think if anyone maybe would have, it maybe had would have been Tito, but even he, you know, declined. So that wasn't too shocking, but because they really kind of do take a, did you ask any of the sisters to, to contribute? Yeah. Sure. I did. Yeah. I, talk, I talked to reps for Janet and Latoya and, and Rebe. Um, yeah. And, and the parents too. Yeah. yeah. Um, can I tell you, I, I, can I tell you a story about how close I got? Oh yeah. We Absolutely. Cause we were just about to ask him. <laughs> uh, you, you may have, if you read super carefully, which almost no one did, you may have noticed that I, I pointed out that the Jackson's modern day Jackson's post Michael's passing um, did a performance and they were in a hallway and they were singing together, Hold On, I'm Coming by Sam and Dave, which obviously is a stack song and not a Motown song. And that's, it's not really a very meaningful or insightful vignette, but it was, it was interesting to me. And the reason I came up with that, this is a bit of an embarrassing story to tell journalistically, so, but I'm going to tell it anyway. It, it, but um, I went to see, I wanted to see the Jacksons perform as part of the research for this. And I went to see them at a casino in Biloxi, Mississippi. Um, so that would have been probably 2013. Um, and I go down there and I see the performance. It was great. You know, I actually enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would, you know, without Michael. And I, I, had, I had made many inquiries. They had a manager at the time and I tried to reach him and I tried to reach all the PR people that were listed on their, their individual websites. And on and on. So I figured what I would do is go there, hang around, and this never works, but I figured I'd try to like talk to a manager or something. And I knew it was, I knew it was a long shot anyway. So show ends and I'm kind of waiting out by the side of the, of the, um, of the stage, nothing's happening. And finally, you know, somebody says, and there's like groupies hanging around and stuff. And so finally I said, okay, fine. And instead of going out the regular door, I went through a sort of a side door thinking maybe I'll run into somebody. It's the door to the garage of the casino, like a covered garage. And then I get stuck. It, it locks behind me and I can't get back in to the entire building, which is where I was staying. 
And I was like, crap, what do I do? I don't know. How, you know, now I'm stuck. So I found like some blackjack dealer who was smoking. <laughs> he was taking a smoke break. And I said, hey, can you let me in? He goes, oh, yeah, sure. So he lets me in and we go up some stairs and down some stairs and we go down a hallway. And there are all the Jacksons in the hallway. Wow. They're all wearing their street clothes, you know, carrying suitcases. They're about to go up the hotel. They're waiting for the elevator at the end of the hall. It was Jermaine and Marlon and Jackie and, and Tito. Um, and some, I mean, a couple of who I presumed were wives and, and girlfriends too. And they're singing that song, Hold On, I'm Coming. They're kind of whistling it and humming it and singing it together. And this is the journalistic and the embarrassing journalistic thing, which is I completely went about, 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 about. And <laughs> I with them about eight seconds. And then they got on the elevator, the doors closed. And, and I, I watched the numbers go up to like, seven. I was like, crap. <laughs> So it's, it's embarrassing. If I had been, you know, uh, uh, Mike Wallace or something, I would have pounced, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not Mike Wallace and I'm really embarrassed about that. So that was, Steve, a that. Steve you want to hear our Jackson story? Cause it'll, it'll allevi- alleviate you of your embarrassment when you hear our Jackson. Story. Yeah. You, you, you came so, so close <laughs> to our experience. It's so, almost oh, but wait a minute, look, Ashley, when he said the groupies on the side of the stage, I said, that was us. That was, that was that, us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. Not we were in North Carolina. We were in the mountain region of North Carolina. As a matter of fact, we drove. So we went up the mountain. They were in Morganton, North Carolina. We talked about this on another show. And we, there's, there's a, there's a stadium. There's an auditorium full of probably, what would you say? Maybe five to six, 700 people. Yeah, it's a couple hundred. In nice wheelchairs. Yeah, in wheelchairs and, um, canes and we're acting we are up. one of the few black people there first of all yeah. it's, it's because it's in the mountains of north carolina <laughs> there's not a lot of black people in the mountains of north carolina so nope. we're there we're having a good time we're dancing we're singing they're pointing at us because we're the only ones uh probably under the age of at that point 35 you know we're like 30 29 30 and um ashley goes at the end of the show we're we're sticking around so like okay we go outside. People are asking us if we know them. We're like, just because we're black doesn't mean we don't know them. We're here just like, <laughs> just like your people were following us. Yeah, they're like, you know them. No, 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 we don't know them. And it just so happened they came out. Now, Steve, <laughs> we attacked. Okay, we got pictures. We talked to them. Um, we knew where they were staying. Uh, we, no, we did not know where they were staying. It turned out they were staying at the hotel. That's right. I was. You were staying at. at. That's what it turned out. Yeah. And I'm. I'm tech. I'm. I called her and I said, I think I'm following the Jackson simply because we're at the same hotel. Like this. Now you awkward. became Steve once you got to the hotel because you ended up in the lobby with him and were like frozen. I I fumbled the bag. So Steve, <laughs> I. <laughs> I I had work to do that night. So I went and got my laptop and worked downstairs. And I'm like, listen, if a Jackson comes out, a Jackson comes out. And, yeah. and they did. came out and smoked a cigar. Yeah. And I, I was like, I can't approach this man. I have no idea what to say. Yeah. Um, so I think I ended up saying goodnight. That but they were so they were so nice to their fans, including yeah, us. You nice. know, what I mean, we, they did not treat people like they were less than or, you know, they signed autographs. People had albums out. It was just an interesting sort of encounter, but they're really nice guys, but they are very private and they don't, like you said, do a whole lot of 
interviewing, they do it on their own terms if they have a project or so forth coming out. That's I, I'm glad you said that. That's that's a great story. I love to hear that. Um, but uh, but um, I, I mean, yeah, they're really careful about what projects they participate in, as you can yeah. imagine. They, I mean, yeah. part of it I relate to for sure. Like they get screwed a lot. Yeah. You know, like like you know, hey, want to be part of this project, and then the next thing you know, it's all about all they're being asked is, did Michael's molest children? Just even from the very distant periphery that I sit in, like I can kind of relate to that, you know. So, so who wants that? But, and, and so here I come sort of like this unauthorized, Hey, I'm writing a book about the Jacksons. No, you know, no matter how earnest I am, yeah, um, I can see them not buying it, but yeah. I did. I, I got kind of far. I was, I felt like I was pretty close with Randy for a while. I, I talked to his rep and, and there were several appointments made for me to talk to Randy and I would wait and he didn't call. And then the next yeah. day I'll call back the next, you know, and that happened several times with him. So it was frustrating. And you said with the girls, it was just a no. Janet was a no, you know, yeah. Janet kind of like didn't even bother. I forget if if I just didn't, if I got ghosted or if it was a publicist, you know, for a major record label or whatever saying like, no, she's not going to do that. Um, Latoya, I found a contact for her and I think I got a response from somebody, but that didn't go anywhere. And Rebe, it took a long time to find a contact for Rebe. Like Rebe stays hidden um, mm-hmm. pretty on purpose. Yeah. And, and that didn't go anywhere either. You also got really close to Michael's personal assistant, Nelson P. Hayes. And we're going to get into like some of the greater chunks in your book shortly, but we're still talking about like proximity to folks that you got to get in touch with. Nelson's perspective isn't often uncovered in a lot of these interviews that we've had over the years and in the book. So I'm wondering if you were able to get in touch with him directly, if these were direct interviews that you might've had with him, or if this is some sourced material and just how those conversations went. You know, um, it's been a long time since anyone asked me about Nelson P. Hayes and you'll have to refresh my memory about what he said in the book, I'm afraid, but, um, but I did talk to him a couple of times, but it was phone. Um, and I forget how I reached him. I, I feel like there were some people who, for a long, long time, they were constantly barraged with questions about Michael, you know, and, and that it drove them nuts. And then they went into being reclusive, like they wouldn't, they didn't want to deal with it. And by the time I came around, which is like three or four years after his death, more than that, it was five or six years after his death, people kind of went, okay, here's a guy, he's got some credibility, he writes for Rolling Stone, he's written for the New York Times, blah, blah, blah. And the questions that he's kind of presenting, you know, in the email that I've seen are not, how do you get his nose done? It's more sort of like substantive about his career and his life and his music. And so I got, I got, I mean, I think Susie was like that. And Nelson was like that. And there are there other people who kind of went, you know, I'll give this guy a chance. So when I did interviews like that, um, I tried to be really sort of, um, you know, live up to to that trust and and just quote them completely in context and check everything and just do what a journalist does. So I, re- I recall that about Nelson um, and he, he was cool. I'd interviewed him at length by phone and then I followed up a few times and he confirmed things. And and uh, yeah, I remember him being a very uh, helpful, nice guy. Yeah, I found um, the input that he shared about Motown 25 to be super informative. And uh, you were able to point out how uh, Michael rehearsed several times exactly where he wanted the hat to be when he picked yes, it up. Yes, that was Nelson told me that. Yes, thank you for reminding me. I remember that. I was like, ding, ding, ding. When he yeah, said. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was awesome. I'm like, oh, of course he did. Like, Because the way he picked it up, it was seamless. And yeah. that explains it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Go ahead. So, go ahead. Can I say one more thing about that? Um, Absolutely. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, but uh, uh, I remember part of the reason that Nelson and I enjoyed talking to each other, I think, was that that was the kind of stuff I wanted to know. You know, like, I, like, okay, if he told me some inside detail about, you know, something having to do with the seedier side of, of Michael Jackson's, uh, like the way people cover Michael Jackson, great. But I was perfectly happy to like ask him 20 questions about where the hat was during the Motown 25 performance. Yeah. He was really happy to answer those questions. So, so it made for, for kind of a cool interview. I think as time has gone on, more people are willing to start have to have more conversations because it doesn't feel so oppressive and burdensome and, you know, in some ways inappropriate with some of the things some journalists or, or writers want to ask and want to kind of probe into. Yeah, I think that part of it, you know, not everything was fortunate about the timing of my project. Like one thing that was unfortunate was that immediately before my book came out, like I remember it was like five or six months before my deadline, the Randall Sullivan book came out. Uh, mm -hmm. And that was unfortunate because it, for a number of reasons, but one is that he preempted a lot of what I was trying to do um, in terms of sort of handling this, this life in, in a thorough way, you know, not in like a gossipy way. Um, right. Although his book wound up going in that direction quite a bit. Like it more did. Yeah. Yeah. I, that that yeah. I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, but another thing was that, um, you know, he, he poisoned the waters a little bit too. Like, um, I, I'm trying to be careful of what I say here because I do not wish to criticize other people who have written about Michael. Sure. Yeah. A lot in that book that's really good. But I do think that there was, it, it's more on the rumor and gossip side than I wanted to write. And I think that some people were suspicious of that. Like he got a lot of negative fan reaction about that. And so when I came, you know, came around calling people, um, it was sort of like, great, here's another guy. So that was, <laughs> on the other hand, there was a there was an opportunity for with a lot of sources for me to correct the record um and and sort of come at some of this stuff with a little bit more sort of again i don't want to rip on the sullivan book because i i like it in a lot of ways but but there was an opportunity for me to say hey i really want to get into the moonwalk in some depth i don't think that book i don't think the tarborelli book i don't think a lot of other yeah. books have done that let's that. talk about just the moonwalk let's talk about the dance moves da 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 um and and I think people that was refreshing to people. So that was in a way that was fortunate. And, and another thing that was fortunate about my timing was that I'm sure you remember, but there, there was this unique period in contemporary Michael Jackson land where he had passed away in 2009 and leaving Neverland had not come out yet. So there was this long period when people were kind of going, well, he was innocent at the 2005 trial. And that was a fair trial. Right. Maybe we can actually like really start and, and he's passed away and we're thinking about legacy. Maybe we can really start to appreciate him for what great things he did without having this taint taintedness, this asterisk of sort of, yeah, but he's a child molester, you know, which which plagued yeah. him in his life for so many years. Um, and so that that was a period where a lot of people felt more free, I think, to write things. Critics, journalists were able to write things more freely about him and how great he was. Um and also kind of like sources in his orbit felt more free to talk for a project like mine. So, um, so that, so that was good timing in a way. And then leaving Neverland, 
I mean, I'm sure we'll get into that, but you know, that, that slammed the door shut on that idea in, in certain ways too. But that was a few years after my book came out. We're going to move on into the early years in Motown. We wanted to talk about uh, this idea of these children. You know, these are children. Um, moving in adult worlds, very young. And one of the things that came across really strong in your book was your understanding explanation of Joe Jackson. And you did, I thought, a really good job of trying to give credit where it's due and to give him his proper credit. So you spent a lot of time trying to sort through the nuances of who he was as a father and a manager. And our question is, do you think he handled that dual role, father and manager, well? Or do you think he sacrificed his role as one to be better at the other? Good question. I think that Joe Jackson is, and I tried to do this, I think that his biography and history is super crucially important to this whole story. And I think the story of Gary Gary Indiana is crucially important. And I'm biased about that because by coincidence, early in my career, when I was in my mid-20s, I was a reporter for the Gary newspaper, um, the Post-Tribune. Oh, and wow. So, yeah, I was there for, and I'm not from Indiana or Chicago. It's it's really more part of Chicago and Northwest Indiana. Um, and I'm not from that area. I'm from, you know, Michigan and Colorado. But I spent a very memorable year in Gary in 94, 95. And I didn't, I wasn't really writing about music too much, but I, I did see the house. And I really got to know Gary as a city. Really, you know, people really rag on Gary, you know, and I think it's, it's racist the way people react to what Gary is like, because Gary is, is, you know, people say it's the murder capital of the world and like people traveling through Chicago to get to Detroit. There's this stretch of highway where the steel mills are that is very smelly and people make jokes about that. They call Gary an armpit and all this stuff. But Gary is, it, it used to be this thriving metropolis. It was the steel city. It was a crucially important city in, in um, industrial America throughout the 20th century. And then it became sort of um, a, an incredibly important capital of, of the black community. And I mean, I tried to get into this in the book where you had, you know, black owned radio stations and black owned businesses and, and certainly record stores and, and, um, and, 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 And there was work to be had, not always glamorous work and sometimes very difficult work at the steel mills um, and the surrounding businesses. And that's what Joe Jackson came from. And I mean, he was originally from Oakland, California, but or he was originally from the South, I should say, you know, and, and then he went to Oakland and then he wound up in Gary. You know, I think that that whole story is important because Joe was um, somebody who had been abused and he he'd been abused by kind of systemic racism and and you know post slavery world in the south and he'd been abused physically by by people in his family and you know i th- i think he was a little bit handicapped when he came around to having being a parent to these these many multiple children who were all crammed together in this house in these bunk beds and he was influenced by the idea of, you know, I got to get out of this place, you know, and he wanted to be a songwriter himself. He, he played music. He was in blues bands. His brother, Luther, was in bands with him. And I actually interviewed Luther at length. And Luther's a really super cool guy. Like he's uh, as when I interviewed him, he was still kind of playing blues around Northwest Indiana. So anyway, I'm rambling about Joe. So, so I and Joe wrote a book 
Um, I don't know if you've seen this book, but it's it's in German. <laughs> At least when I wrote my book, the only way you could get a copy of Joe Jackson's book is in the German language. So I actually had to hire a translator um, who was somebody in my ex-wife's family who who knew German. And she I hired her to translate the whole thing for me. So I have sort of like an exclusive. Yeah, I saw that. I was like German. <laughs> I thought I was tripping, but so that's officially (laughs) how he chose to distribute it. There is a translation, an English translation going around on the Internet, and I didn't trust that one. Um, No. Who knows? You know, Um, it it wasn't sourced. It was just like somebody had had done it. So I paid, you know, a, a couple thousand dollars to this, you know, indirect relative of mine and she translated it. And I tried and then I tried to confirm things. So I quote from that book a lot in the very beginning of my book. And, and, uh, and, and then I tried to confirm it using like property records um, in, in the South and, and, you know, Joe's the family farm that he talked about growing up in and, and on and on, you know, and, and I wound up talking to other people who, who, you know, were part of those communities who, who like could help me figure out what those records meant. Um, And I really geeked out on this, like, like the, I, I felt like I wanted to treat Joe's history the way people write about, like the way other music journalists have written about like important blues musicians from the South. Like, I, I mean, Robert Johnson comes to mind, but that's kind of too obvious of an example. And he's sort of more mythical. But, you know, the, the story of Mississippi John Hurt, for example, has been really well documented. And Joe Jackson kind of lived or buddy guy, you know, a younger mm-hmm. figure. And but Joe Jackson kind of lived that kind of life, although he wasn't successful as a musician. He was part of the the Great Migration, you know. And I think that that whole broader story and how how the whole family winds up as part of in northern opportunity in industrial factories is is really important. So so forgive me for geeking out on that for for a stretch, but um, no, I really came to appreciate that side of Joe, and then. I tried to understand why he was also abusive. Mm. And that was harder because I do think he was abusive to his kids. Yeah. And physically abusive. And and you know, and people have asked me sort of, do you really think he was abusive? Because like Joe, you know, gave an interview many years later when he was older, saying, you know, somebody said, Did you beat Michael? Because Michael accused him of that on Oprah. Michael accused Joe Jackson of physical abuse on in on national television. Tens of millions of people watched that episode. And um, and Joe's response when people asked him about it was sort of like, I didn't beat my kids, I whooped him. And that there's a difference, you know. And and I I watched that video that he gave and I quoted him on that. And I tried, I went down the down the road of sort of like a lot of people I talked to would say, well, this is what I was told, sort of African-American family culture at that time period was in order to discipline your kids, you had to be physically abusive. And that's just how it was. And I was like, really? And so I called a bunch of experts, like university professors and stuff about physical abuse uh, among families and and Mm -hmm. abusive kids. And to a person, they all, you know, I wanted to know, is there any way to sort of like, is that a credible thing to say? Like, it doesn't feel right to me. And to a person, they disagreed. They said, abuse is abuse. It's wrong to abuse your kids. I don't care what culture you're in. It's no good. It's not discipline. It doesn't lead to anything good. So that I, I was influenced by all of those things when I was writing about Joe, who I think is a very complicated character. And as you suggest in your question, there's a lot of good to him. 
if it weren't for him, there would not be a Jackson five and there would not be a Michael, a Michael Jackson. I'm quite convinced of that. Right, but there's yeah. a lot of bad in him too, you know, going all the way into the Jackson's history well into the 80s. Right. It's a lot of good and bad. And sometimes it feels like the bad gets a lot more weight and people will ignore the the you know the the other side of the coin i can say this so you now have two experts in the black community uh yeah. to talk to you your book is out but we're going to add a, a footnote here yeah. we, and it's funny ash and i were talking about this earlier today we were we're capricorns and we were wild as kids okay mm. i i don't know about you ashley i would go in stores and i was a wanderer so my yeah. mom would be oh, like god my mom would be like, stay close to me. And I would just go off. I would, yeah. I had no fear. Somebody could just could have took me. I heard my name on the intercom so many times <laughs> in like the Walmart. And my mom, her face would be like, when I, when you get home, she wasn't going to do it at the store. But whoopings, I got. And so I get that, right? It's not understandable to a lot of people. And I do think there's a cultural cultural divide in some of that, even though I have white friends who got whoopings too. I saw them get them, you know? And I think some of the things Michael described, people are never gonna agree as to whether or not if you fit, use corporal punishment, you are right or wrong, right? But the things Michael described from Joe far exceed, I never, there was never any marks left. There was never any, irons the things michael described go beyond anything i personally ever experienced and anything i ever know that someone ever told me they experienced from their parents as far as punishment and physical punishment what he described being it being so bad that you're sick to your stomach when the person comes around or that you know there's a there's a physical fear that manifests itself that to me is what kind of separates what I do recognize as honestly in the black community is a, is a thing. And what it seems that Michael was describing and Ashley, I, I wanted you to kind of give your thoughts on that too. Yeah. I, you know, I think spankings in the black community are just normal, unfortunately. Um, and I think they taper off. Um, I think the new generation, we're millennials. So like our, our delegation and younger are trending away from it and finding other forms of parenting. But especially early on, corporal punishment is your parents. One, it's in the Bible. Spare the rod, spoil the child. And we already know what the household is like at the Jacksons. Um, so they're quoting straight out of the Bible. Um, but it's if we don't check you, the police will. If I don't check you, right. um, some white man somewhere that's intimidated by your behavior will. And that's what Joe Jackson was uh, trying to relate to his kids. And a lot of black parents try to relate to their kids. And we just have to find alternative methods, because I think what Michael put on showcase in front of the world is that people take that too far and it has long-term right. effects on their children. But right. I, I really appreciate Steve unpacking Joseph's background in the book because people do skip over it, like you were saying, but also like we brought this up in a previous podcast, Steve, Joseph himself is a product of very likely an abusive relationship. His right. father was a teacher of his mother, who was a student in his class, which 
you know, you put your 2022 goggles on, that's highly inappropriate. So, you know, we have to unpack all of these things with our futuristic glasses and think, okay, now what, under what circumstances is this okay? And then how has society evolved, but how do these traumas still linger in your families? And, and I think that's a part of us trying to unpack all the myths around the Jacksons to humanize them in their legacy. Really, I was listening really hard to what you were both saying there. And I think that that's really um, all important points. And I'll just, I won't add much to that other than to say that house was very complicated. <laughs> you know, that little tiny house um, yeah. on, on Jackson Street in Gary, um, which was crammed full of kids. Uh, there was a lot going on. <laughs> you know, it, it was it was not just a, a, a simple thing that was happening. And, and when you're trying to piece together the facts, like we all are doing here and, and what you've been doing on this podcast and I've tried to do in my book, you know, there's so many different witnesses and inter- interpreters who are in that house who, who, you know, are giving their variation of what happened in the story. And, and then you've got sort of the filter of a lot of the sources of what happened in that house are really conditioned by the Motown public relations machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly, Michael was famous for that. You know, my, oh, yeah. I mean, Michael was was a student of P.T. Barnum. You know, yeah. he he, yeah. Uh, he did not always let he he very rarely leveled with the public, I think. And then like when you look at, for example, um, Joe's book or Jermaine Jackson's book, which I'm sure you've read. Oh, have we, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> and me too. I went through that thing line by line. I mean, I, I, I quoted quite a lot from it um, and and a lot of. You know, what you just said, the the idea of in order to discipline um, our children and make them go down the straight, narrow path, we have to we have to whoop them. You know, Jermaine endorses that idea like he he believes and other brothers have said this in, in the interviews over the years that if it weren't for Joe, they would have wound up as drug, drug addicts, gang members on the streets, whatever you know phrase you want to use. And, and I think Jermaine says in his book that, I think he wrote it when Michael was still alive, or maybe it was just a few years later, but he said he was proud of the fact that none of, none of his brothers yeah. followed the path. Yeah. Um, and he credits his father for that. So that's, I mean, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, but, um, but I think it's an important perspective and needs to be paid attention to. Yeah, we we brought that up in a previous podcast and we strongly urged any Jackson who might be listening to the podcast to go to therapy and unpack that because it's not it's not a great That's stance not to easy. have now. You know, there was an yeah. interview Michael gave with Martin Bashir and we'll get into that later, but where he said he remembered his mom saying, Joe, stop, you're going to kill him, you know, while they, they were being disciplined physically. That's a whole nother level of something that I don't think anyone can agree with. But as you said, Michael became the most vocal of these children to express what happened. And I think some of the other brothers felt a need to maybe protect their father because they did feel that maybe he was wrong, but he did the best he knew to do, even though it was wrong. And so maybe they felt more of a need to protect him versus pile on to what Michael's saying, who has the biggest microphone, right? No one's listening. You know, if, if, if one of the other brothers comes out tomorrow and tries to unpack all this, someone will listen. But, you know, if Michael were here and were to do so, the world would listen. And so maybe they felt a need to protect their father. And that, that also leans into some of that defending him, you know? Yeah. And the only thing I, you're right. And the only thing I would add to that is 
Um, then we've got the whole story of Latoya that complicates yeah, this yeah. And, and perhaps complicates why the brothers and the other siblings have have not been willing to talk about this in public because yeah. you know Latoya came out with that salacious book um, back in the early '90s, and then she she sort of like went against the whole thing in a later book. So, but still, the original allegations of sexual abuse by her parents and some of I think she said. Certainly her dad, I, I'm pretty sure she said at least one of her brothers. You'll have to correct me on that. But but uh, that was out. You know, that was sort of like the narrative um, yeah. for 15 years or more, you know, until she came out with that second book where she said that, you know, her her abusive ex-husband made her tell all these stories. Um, so that I think for years, I think the brothers were kind of like perhaps hiding under the bed. Like they saw what happened with that. And they were like, I'm not even going there. Just to circle back around the idea of did he sat did Joe sacrifice being the best father for being the best manager? You made a couple of comments in your book that we found very like uh, shocking um, in, in a way. I believe it was Bobby Taylor you said uh, who said to you that he once pulled a, a gun on Joe Jackson um, okay. in a rec- in a recording studio because of how he was behaving. And then there was another individual, I can't remember who, who said, listen, nobody liked him. That was multiple individuals who said, nobody likes this guy. Yeah. Yeah. What was your take on again? Did he sacrifice really being this father to be this manager? And what was your take on how others were really viewing him during these formative years while he's trying to get his kids out of Gary and into a better life? Yeah, well, first of all, I want to clarify, I did not talk to Bobby Taylor for the book, although I, I did later talk to him um, for other things. But uh, that quote about the gun was pretty well public. Like that was on um, uh, one of the Jackson 5 Motown box sets in the liner notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I can, I, it's, it's in the notes. I, I can, I forget the name of it. I think it was Soul Station, but I can't remember. Um, but yeah, so, so Bobby Taylor had been public about that gun anecdote for a, for a long time. Um, and there were other people who, during the Motown years and then later on tour, there was a lot of sort of like I talked to people who toured with the Jacksons post Motown who were sort of like, you know, band members and Joe was managing the whole tour and they would say, well, he didn't pay me, you know, and, and there, there were just a lot of people like Joe became Joe was kind of the bad guy in the story. And, and it was easy for people to take shots at him because in part because Joe just absorbed it throughout his whole life. He was like, yeah, that's fine. I'll be the bad guy. Um, that was kind of his public persona, really, in a way. Um, and he would respond to stuff now and then. But mostly, I think he was just sort of like, yeah, I had to be the bad guy. Because if I didn't, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have gotten where we did. Um, did he sacrifice being a father for that? That's a really interesting question. And and I, I would probably need to unpack that some more. Um because you have to go into sort of like what was Joe's Jacks what was Joe Jackson's own version of what being a father mm-hmm. what did that mean you know like as you said very well earlier like he was the child of abuse um and and of a very bad situation growing up not only with his own family but also like systemic racism in the south and and um you know he had a certain kind of idea of what made a parent so i'm sure if you asked him he would say, I thought I was a great parent. I made my kids oh, yeah. successful. Yeah. You know, Michael said in his in his autobiography, before he came out with the with the detailed abuse allegations, he said my father was very difficult to get to know. Mm. He, said he was sort of like a, a figure that was distant. Um, which not only me, but others who have written about Michael have been struck by that passage. And so I think that Joe was not 
certainly not a kind, cuddly figure. He didn't sit on the floor and play with toys with his kids. You know, he he left that to Catherine if, if anybody was going to do that. He did not flinch at whatever people thought about yeah. him, you know, and he almost had a right to do so because it's like, OK, you can say all this about me, but look what I did. What have you done? Right. I created the Jackson five. <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally, like not creatively, physically. Literally, I physically created them. Yeah. And then I then I professionally created them. You Nine know, and- of my little faces <laughs> running around here with instruments. That is some crazy shit to kind of yeah. like think about. Yeah. Um, but Steve, you you cruise right into the next section that we wanted to cover. Um, it, we're, we wanted to talk a little bit about Michael's family and what you unpacked there. And you kind of uh, talked about Catherine a bit. I want to know what you discovered about her in this process. We spent a good chunk of the book talking about Joe's background and, uh, you know, how he was the driving force in, in keeping this band in the road. But uh, you, what were some wa- some thoughts you walked away with about Catherine, especially with her um, still being a big part of Michael's legacy now and, and how he's discussed in the media. Um, what did you take away from uh, her overall experience raising these kids in this entertainment industry um, and kind of like giving them over to Motown and entrusting them uh, to, to, to take the baton from there? Yeah. Um, I think Catherine is also a more complicated figure than people give her credit for. I think that if you assume, and I think there's plenty of evidence for this, that it was an abusive family, I think that it's fair to say, based on the evidence, that Catherine was an enabling figure. Um, I think she allowed it to happen, you know, perhaps for whatever reason. I don't think she's really talked about this, but perhaps because she was worried about Joe's temper or Joe's violence herself. You know, I don't know. Um, I'm just raising that as kind of speculation. But all through you know, and, and early on as part of the story, like, you know, there, there are these parts where Joe's running around trying to do all these things and get the Jackson's career off the ground. And who's supporting the family during this period? Catherine, she has to take extra jobs. She has to work at Sears. She has to do, you know, all this and cook all the meals and do everything, you know, which is a typical story in many ways. And, and then she becomes a soothing figure for Michael. And he talks about her frequently in that way, all the way up to the, you know, in almost every interview he does, he talks about his mother. Um, But I think that you can make an argument that Catherine kind of sold him out a few times, (laughs) you know, like, like there's a section when um, in the victory tour where like Michael, clearly it was right after thriller came out and on the victory tour, he could have had his own tour full control, no brothers, no family involvement whatsoever and done incredibly well would have been a very rich man just based on that tour alone. And yet he allows his parents to come back, his father in particular, to come back into his life. And he allows Don King to take over the tour, which was just a disaster, which was something that his father wanted to do. How does he get talked into that? His mother talks him into it. And, and that goes all the way up to, to the sort of the end of his life. That's kind of a recurring theme. And so I think that, uh, you know, while Joe, I think, gets kind of Joe's image is very negative and there's probably more positive that people don't acknowledge. I think Catherine's image is very positive and perhaps there's more negative that people don't acknowledge. 
Yeah, we love how you kind of point that out because we talked in a previous podcast about Catherine getting like this saintly figurehood in the and there's another family tale. There's another book that goes into that, Ashley. I can't remember the name of it. We both read it. The oh, author the Margot, the Margot. Margot, the Margot book. Have you heard of that? Have you read that one, Steve? Refresh my memory. That's not familiar. Did it did it come out? Margot, more? yeah, Margot Jefferson. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Yes. The, mm-hmm. the a critical book yes mm-hmm. a great book. you went deep into exactly what you just said yeah i may have been influenced by her thinking on that because she's really she got really deep on the jackson family ideas i and and uh i i that was one of the very first books i read when i was oh, yeah? doing yeah. the, this project so i was probably influenced by that yeah we want to ask you a bit about the brothers because we try to dig into their individual catalogs, um, things that they have going on, uh, because they are so important in the foundation of the music Michael ended up creating. And you can't ignore the Motown and CBS discography. What did you walk away learning about the brothers as far as their talent is concerned? Did you find that Michael is a is or was a prop that kind of held this band together? Or did you really think between the Jackson five and the Jackson's iterations of the band, like this was a solid band um, and they, they could have sustained longer if Michael just didn't become a, a pop supernova. What are your thoughts on them and their talent? Yeah. Another good question. I thought about that a lot. I listened to those recordings a lot. And I tried to listen to some to them sort of chronologically. <laughs> like I, I approached this book, like I had my previous one where I did it in chronological order in, in the research. So I started in Gary and I listened to those early recordings. I'm sure you've heard them. Um, and then I went to Motown and then I went to, you know, the Jacksons on CBS. And then I went to off the wall and it was really super fun to do that experiment. Um, you know, because uh, on a few levels, one, you can sort of hear Michael's voice changing which is super cool. When you listen to all those songs in order, you go, oh, that's the track where he went from that brassy little kid voice to the more kind of soulful voice that we know from, from Off the Wall and Thriller. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, but I'm digressing, but um, the Jackson 5, I thought they were a great, and do not get enough credit for this, vocal group. One of the best of all time. You know, Beatles, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, I will put the Jackson five up with any of that. You've got uh, Jermaine who was primed as a young, as a child to lead that band until Michael came along, you know, like Jermaine would have been the lead singer of that band in any universe, except one where he's preempted by Michael Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. God damn it. He must've. <laughs> oh, he hated that. I don't think he, I, I mean, he, you know, Jermaine's been very, very careful over the years about what he's said about that particular issue. And now and then something squeaks out where he talks. Mm-hmm. About so, oh, yeah. boy, do we <laughs> unpack it. We've got a segment of the podcast where we just drop. Let's get serious. Um, and it's <laughs> always very apropos to whatever Jermaine's got going on, because he was the lead guy. And this baby, oh, a yeah. six year old, yeah. walks up and takes your gig. Takes your mic and Jermaine, to shatter him. Yes. Well, well put. Um, but Jermaine in the Motown years had this sort of like Levi Stubbs of four tops voice where he's sort of like, I don't know if they kind of pushed him into the higher register just to, to make, give his voice that, that extra kind of like John Lennony kind of oomph to it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
or, or I'm not sure what the strategy was there, but it's definitely worked. Because I think on those classic singles, his voice is some of the most powerful singing, you know, in, in addition to Michael. And then you've got like Jackie in the in the George Harrison role, right? I'm, I mean, I'm sorry to compare them to a white group, but, but you know, I think it, it's an analogy that a lot of people know. But Jackie's got this high, beautifully, perfectly smooth voice that's very soulful. And it bridges the gap between Jermaine and Michael. And the three of them together, you know, and then I, I, I don't really think Marlon contributes that much, although he claims he does. If he does, he's sort of filling in the gaps. And Tito's kind of there to sometimes provide the low and, and play guitar. That's my impression. But, but those three in particular were this incredibly sympathetic backup group. And, and not only that, I mean, and then, you know, trained by Motown, um, at least vocally. They didn't play any of the instruments in Motown, but then they went on tour. And when they went on tour, they kind of went into the woodshed and they and they really, really worked hard to be a, a band, you know, and and Jermaine playing bass and, and Jackie playing guitar, or not Jackie, uh, Tito rather, playing guitar and all the dance moves and all that stuff. And they they toured and toured and toured and they got really, really freaking good at it. You know, so by the time these these um these post-Motown tours came along, like Destiny and Triumph. Uh, everything in uh, leading up to victory and even victory, you've got a really well-honed machine. I mean, you've got kind of like, um, God, I keep, I think about like the great sympathetic bands for a front person in history, in, in rock history. And I think about like James Brown and the JBs, mm -hmm. um, the famous flames, you know, and, and I think about um, Bruce Springsteen and the E street band, you know, and, 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 I feel like that if Michael had been able to sort of keep his brothers as his backup band, that would have been an insane thing to see the evolution of that all the way up to the end. Oh but yeah. Of course, yeah. You know, the politics of that, the family yeah. politics of that didn't make that possible. The politics. It's yeah. pol always politics. So Steve, <laughs> let me ask you this. Who do you think was the best of the rest? Take Michael out, put him to the side. Who was the guy who it's like, you had the next best shot at stardom. Well, the easy answer to that is Jermaine. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I do think that that's true. You know, I think Jermaine vocally had the most talent after Michael. But um, I have to say, I have a soft spot for Jackie. I think of him as George Harrison. Like when, when I listen to the Beatles, you know, I listen for George. <laughs> like, where is George in this? You know, Don's <laughs> obvious, Paul's obvious. You can hear yeah. Ringo drumming. Where's George? That's the cool part. That's the secret sauce, right? And and when I listen to the Jackson Five, I feel the same about Jackie. Like, okay, there's Michael. We know that. We know there's Jermaine. We know where the instruments are. Where's Jackie in this? Yeah. And yeah. when you pay attention to Jackie, it's like, ooh. And then Jackie had a couple of Motown records that sadly yeah. didn't go anywhere that are mm -hmm. really cool. I mean, if I, if I had to sort of rank the Jackson's records after, you know, certainly Thriller and Off the Wall, you know, and, and, and a couple of those early Motown group records, I would put that Jackie Jackson record right up there. Yeah. He's good. He's, he's, it, it's so hard when you have such an outsized talent like Michael yes. to then focus in on the talent of these other guys, but it's there. Yeah. And yeah. I think Motown wanted, like you, you talked about in your book, they wanted to do it. They said, Hey, we can probably get something for all these guys. And then Marlon will be the, if we can, if we can make something work for the rest, we can make something work for Marlon. Yep. That, that never, 
Yeah. It it never really came to fruition. It never really panned itself out. But Jackie had the look. Jackie had the sound. He had the, you know, he had the package in a way that the others did not. I think we all have said, and and I want to kind of get your take on this too, Steve, you kind of wish they would have continued to create at a high level, even if Michael decided to go off and do his own thing. They could have done more than wait 10 years to then come out with 2300 Jackson Street. Like they could have still done a lot after Michael decided to move on to showcase their own talent. And because they were such an integral part of the songs, a lot of Michael fans love. It's like, this is a Jackson sound. Yeah. You know, so what are your thoughts on that? Like their ability to move outside of Michael, do you think they missed an opportunity at some point? And then later after Michael passes away, they do kind of pick it up again. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a missed opportunity, but also I think that the the family dynamics about the period that you're talking about going into the late 70s, then the 80s and 90s, pretty much made that impossible. You know, there, there's no way that that could have happened. Um, it, 2300 Jackson Street is not a very good record, I don't think. Um, and, and I do think that while I like a lot of those CBS Jackson records, um, you know, I think that there were diminishing returns at a certain point. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I think it would have, wouldn't have really been possible during that time period. It would be cool to see what they would come up with now. Um, but now, you know, I don't know. I mean, they, they seem to like going on stage and playing the old hits. Do they want to sort of do a new album, music, yeah. interpret new things? Uh, it's an interesting question. I would, I would listen to it. I would buy it. I would check it out. I want to read a couple of quotes to you and then I'll ask the question. So <laughs> the first quote is going to be from your book. So you'll recognize it. Okay. Okay. I'm ready. Cooley, who the dancer. Yeah. You say in your book, Cooley had spent most of his career giving credit to others for the backslide. Yeah. Bill Bailey, James Brown, etc. What frustrates him is that Michael wasn't similarly aggressive about giving credit to his forebears. And the quote from Cooley is, we kind of ended up being invisible, but we never said anything about it. Yeah. yeah. yeah the second quote is from Quincy Jones in 2018. Quincy Jones says, I hate to get into this publicly, but Michael stole a lot of stuff. He stole a lot of songs. Donna, Donna Summers, State of Independence, and Billie Jean. The notes don't lie. That's Quincy Jones. And then the third quote is from Paul Anka, who wrote, This Is It. He accused Michael in his autobiography, he accused Michael of stealing tapes of songs they'd worked on in the 80s from the studio that he had. And he had to threaten Michael, he claims, to get his tapes back. Paul Anka says in his book, as a direct quote, you could tell he, Michael, was wildly ambitious and capable of anything. I sensed an absolute ruthless streak. So my question to you, giving those three quotes, those three ideas and three perspectives from different people who all intimately work with Michael, what do you think Michael Jackson's, and it's hard to get into someone's mind, but given the body of work you've had a chance to analyze, do you think his intention was to be malicious or do you think he was simply unaware sometimes of how he failed to properly bring in key sources that influenced his art and his dance and his music? Yeah, good question. I was going to address the Cooley thing earlier in the discussion of the moonwalk. I mean, I, on one level, I have sort of a, a flip three-word answer, which is great artists steal. You know, um, I, I mean, I think that it's, it's very difficult to sort of say in pop music, 
you know, this, this strokes track steals from this Tom Petty track, you yeah. know, and mm-hmm. or, or this one direction track steals from this one who track, you know, and on and on and on and on. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's, it's very difficult when you start, when you start sort of saying what came from what Cooley's concern is just with the credit. Um, and, and as you read in that quote, and we talked about that at length when I spoke to him, I remember that. And he felt that he worked so much with Michael that Michael should have just said, Hey, you know, you guys, you guys gave this to me. Now, Michael in his autobiography does refer to name a couple of nameless kids who taught in the moonwalk, if, if memory serves, but he doesn't name them. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't know what pressures were on Michael to not credit his sources, but he was very careful to not do so. And another example I would give, in addition to the ones you mentioned, was, um, you know, want to be starting something uh, starts yeah. with uh, yep. the Mano de Bango song, mm-hmm. um, Sol Macasa. And, and Michael just did that without even, and, and Quincy and all those people uh, who were working on that record without giving any credit or contacting the Manu Dibango people at all. And then uh, of course, when that album came out and it became a hit, his people went, Hey, what the hell's going on here? And then they had to, as I report in the book, they had to, you know, pay some sort of settlement yeah. for that. Yeah. Um, and I think in the book, you talked about how it was so little in comparison to what that song and its inclusion on this album netted Michael, but they did pay something, but it's like, Oh, it's almost, well, you know, it's, they yeah, very small. Yeah. 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 They accepted yeah. very little in comparison to maybe what they could have. So yeah. bringing it into that thriller t- discussion, thriller off the wall thriller. We know you talk about in your book, which everyone is aware of Quincy Jones talks about it a lot in his interviews where he does discuss Michael meeting Michael on the whiz and saying, Hey, I want a shot at, you know, producing you. And Michael famously going to CBS and saying, this is the guy I want. I don't care that you think he's too jazzy or too old or whatever. This is who I want. And from that, they make a a trilogy that is a standard. Yeah. How do you think that Quincy Jones connection, that Michael Quincy connection compares to the next three albums of Dangerous, History, and Invincible. And do you think Michael's pursuit of creating new and doing more alienated some of the core elements that made him a success? Good question. Um, I think the Quincy records were more controlled environments and self-contained. And I think Michael deferred to Quincy, as I say in the book, almost as like a father figure, a creative father figure, let's say, and somebody he respected who was going to have a steady hand on the stuff that, that he didn't have to worry about. And so I think that he allowed Quincy to control the structure of those productions, but like the pop structure. And just as Michael's a genius, Quincy's a genius on that side, you know, and brings in his own people who are the best in the business. And so Michael bonded with a lot of them. Bruce Swedeen was Quincy's engineer. Um, and Michael had a great relationship with him. And, and on some of these records, famously on Thriller, you know, Bruce and Michael would sit around experimenting with different sounds and they would come up with like, you know, whacking on some cardboard box in a bathroom, you know, and oh, that's a big drum sound. Let's use that, you know. And, and so there was like this structured environment that Quincy set up within which 
Michael could kind of limitlessly play. And that I think that that was the perfect relationship. It was it's one of the most perfect pop relationships in pop music history. Um, yeah, yeah. Up there yeah. with sort of like Bernie Taupin and Elton John, or mm-hmm. you know, on and on and on. Holland, Holland, Dozier, Holland. You know. Oh yeah. Michael and Quincy. I think that's a really super important relationship. But then when you get into bad, you know, suddenly we're starting to see cracks in the foundation, and some of that. I mean, there's there's a lot of like. Um, people talk about that salaciously, like, ooh, Michael broke with Quincy during that period. And I kind of was influenced by some of that discussion. And I went into it thinking that was salacious, you know, like, like here's a great friendship and, and partnership that was fraying by this period and they were at odds. Part of that, some of that was happening, I think, but the more dominant thing was that I think Quincy was smart enough to realize, well, Michael's evolving and growing and he's growing away from me. And so Quincy kind of encourage that but there are these these moments on bad where you have the a team and the b team and the a team was famously what quincy talked about in the press which was all his people you know all all the great musicians um greg phil and Gaines and and you know all the all the great people who played on thriller and and uh sorry thriller and off the wall uh john robinson the drummer and and you know i'm forgetting a lot of names Oh, who's the guy from the Brothers Johnson who played bass? He was incredible. I talked to him. Lewis Johnson. Lewis Johnson. Yes, yep. he passed away. I think not too long ago. Mm-hmm. He was he was fantastic. Um, but then once you get and and Michael would sort of, the 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 method was that Michael would do some of his own recordings like Billy Jean or Beat It or um, Want to Be Starting Something at home in his own place. And the it's it's I mean one thing that myself and a lot of people find fascinating about Michael's genius is that he did not play an instrument. And so he had to hire people to come to his house to sort of like communicate his ideas that were in his head musically onto instruments, particularly synthesizers. And, and anyway, this is happening in the evolution of synthesizers, which I kind of took an interest in. That was the B team. The A team was Quincy's professional studio guys who were the best of the best. By the time you get to bad, the A team and the B team are kind of clashing with each other. And therefore, Michael and Quincy are kind of clashing with each other. And Michael's growing away from Quincy, and Quincy knew it. And that lead, that tension, that that disconnect away from Quincy, in order, you know, where Michael is trying to forge his own identity, which was not new for him. He did that with the Jacksons as well. Um, that leads into some of his ideas on dangerous and then history, and then Invincible. When we get to Dangerous, which I think is one of the most interesting albums in Michael's catalog, I really love that album. It's not, I'm not sure it's my favorite. Suddenly we see Michael kind of flailing around with his own ideas, kind of like, well, over here I'll use this producer, and over here I'll use this songwriter, mm-hmm. and over here I'll work with this yeah. guy, and over here I'll yeah. work with Eddie Riley, and you know, yeah. it's evolving. Here I'll use hip-hop, and here I'll use yeah. funk, and, and here I'll use pop, and... and um, it's it's less controlled. It's 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 less sort of we're in Quincy Jones's very carefully structured world. Now we're in this like like wild wild west world that's Michael Jackson's brain, mm-hmm. um, which is very cool in and of itself. And it gets even more you know into these depths in the future projects. Steve, that's a perfect segue into uh, the post Quincy era of Michael's career that we want to dig into. Um, The first thing we want to ask you is what do you think the single best business move MJ made uh, during his career was like, 
business move that he made and, and the one that we should like keep in mind, especially thinking about the context of pop stars now and the things that they're accomplishing in this era. What move did he make that, that kind of sticks like grit? Well, again, I'm, I'm going to give you two answers to that. Um, the, the one that is most obvious that comes to mind that I think became most important for him personally in his life to the very end was the purchase of the Beatles catalog. I'm just saying um, that was the most important. I think if you look at Michael Jackson's finances, which I did quite a bit in this book and others have too, you have to say that if it weren't for that very smart purchase by him and his attorney, um, John Branca at the time, which I think was 1984, you know, they bought very, very low and then, and then they just let that thing grow financially you know, Michael, who knows what would have happened to him? I mean, that thing, he, he, he leveraged that thing in so many different ways. And, and if it weren't for that, you know, he would have gone into bankruptcy, some pretty terrible things might've happened to him financially. And then who knows, but that was able to, that catalog with his backing was so valuable that it was able to sort of like bankroll and fund any kind of experiment or personal thing he wanted to do. So I would say that, um, but then I think creatively and, and what kind of helped him become the, the kind of enduring genius that he became was certainly the, the splitting apart from um, his family, you know, and, and making, going into solo career land and making off the wall and working with Quincy. You know, I think that that was creatively the most important thing. It led directly to off the wall and thriller and the rest. And that's why we're talking about it today. Absolutely. And we're going to, in the next few minutes, close out and talk about the end of his career and how that split might have set him up for disaster. And we talked a bit, you know, about how it would have been awesome during the dangerous and history era to see the brothers as his background band instead of the random dudes who were back there. The 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 new Jack Swing era. We touched on this just a bit. What do you think Teddy Riley's uh, contribution during this era was? What did you discover about that Teddy Riley era that kind of stretched through Invincible in in two thousand and one? Yeah, um, I mean, I think Michael was influenced by Teddy Riley and and Jam and Lewis and that whole sound, which was sort of, I mean, the new Jack Swing sound was sort of like old school R and B that was updated and influenced by hip hop. I think Michael connected to that. You know, I think he was sort of like, Michael's ears and antenna were always up. He was always trying to figure out what was new and modern. And honestly, you know, a record that records that he was really paying attention to were his sister's records. You know, Janet Jackson had put out Control and Rhythm Nation and, and all these other great, great pop records. And, and they were, for a while, they were kind of doing better than his records. Um, and and he, was, he was kind of like, well, what's the secret sauce there? And so I think he was influenced by that on some of Dangerous. Dangerous is a, I was influenced in my writing um, on Dangerous and I quoted and attributed as well um, by the 33 and a third book that um, the professor. Susan Fast. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's Mm -hmm. a really good book. It's a uh, good book. Yeah. yeah, And she, she's done as I'm sure, you know, other writings on Michael too, that are very, during that same period I'm talking about, like after he died, but before leaving Neverland, Mm -hmm. I think some of her appreciations critically of him um, are definitive. They're important um, and well written too. And uh, so, you know, when you talk about the songs on Dangerous that are kind of getting into that zone, like just the first couple songs, 
like dangerous just comes on like a pile driver. It's just, yeah. yeah. Jam, and then you got why you want to trip on me. And those aren't the most famous songs on dangerous, but they kick ass if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. And so th- there were a lot of people who contributed to that record, but, um, but the Teddy Riley tracks are, are, I think important. Um, and then you get to history and there there's others that are kind of in that vein. Although I guess I'm, I'm, I'm thinking more about history. I don't think of that as sort of a new Jack swing record quite as much. I guess there are some tracks on it that are more like that. Um, I'm just looking at the track listing of it now. Certainly like they don't care about us and, and um, a few others. Um, yeah, I guess you're right. I guess, I guess it is more, but then invincible, he kind of has that Rodney Jerkins influence. And then that kind of gets into more funky stuff that was going on at the time. So, yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I do think that he was looking in that new Jack swing direction. And when you talk about the new Jack swing stuff of the, of that period, I think you have to talk about these tracks in that context. Yeah. Michael took Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis right from under Janet's nose, like yeah, aggressively. Well, they kept working with her too, though. I mean, right? Right. Oh, yeah. To this day. Yeah. Right. Right. Yes. Exactly. To this day. So, um, we want to talk about some of the reoccurring themes as we're closing out in Michael's music. We uh, had a Halloween episode where we kind of explored some of the reoccurring themes of paranoia um, and uh, Michael's tendency to lean towards horror in his music and i'm wondering how do you kind of unpack michael's reoccurring themes that pop up in his music where it might be revealing struggles with fame overall but certainly uh, depression and anxiety kind of popping up over the the course of many years really starting almost as soon as they started writing for themselves yeah, I mean, it's hard. That's a really hard question. Um, and that was something that I tried to delve into. But, but you know, other critics have probably done a better job than me. But, um, you know, Michael, there's an anger that runs into his, his work, which I think sets him apart from some of his peers. You know, like, like even Billie Jean, it's kind of unclear who he's mad at at that song. You know, he's mad at, at, the, at this, the narrator, the protagonist of the song is mad at the woman who, who claims that the, the child is his. You know, it, it, when you start start to unpack that song and what it's about, you kind of go, really? That's what he's angry about? But the anger is really palpable. You know, there's like a fierceness, like he's singing through gritted teeth. And, and I think that that is a very um, alluring approach that he took. You know, Beat It takes that approach. Black or White takes that approach. They don't care about us. It's like a punk rock thing that Michael has. Um don't stop till you get enough. It, it kind of does that in a different way. And so, you know, like, what are you rebelling against, Michael? I don't know. What is he rebelling against? He usually doesn't say every now and then, you know, like uh, the song DS, it, it becomes, it becomes a little bit more apparent, you know? So, so I, I think that uh, Michael is angry in his music. A yeah, lot of time. And, and I mean, you think of him as being this gentle, you know, like famously gentle persona who is, who is heal the world. You know, he has that side yeah. of him too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, very trying to be a very empathetic figure, like with smile or, or with, um, with uh, uh, childhood, you know, all those kinds of songs, but there's, there's like a, there's an ass kicking this to it as well. With, <laughs> I mean, I'm a punk rock fan. I love my yeah. favorite of all time is the who, 
And so, and I started listening to, I mentioned them earlier. I started listening to them when I was very, very young and like, I'm attracted to angry music. So, you know, if I was doing a book about Adele or something, just to name an example that I just pulled out of the air, like, I don't think I would quite feel the same connection right. with, with, uh, with Michael in the pop world. We think about the personal things he was going through and how that affected it. Like you talked a bit about how the chaos in his family had a lot to do with that. The things he was seeing his brothers go through, everybody's kind of pissed off at Joseph because he's kind of a money pit and asking people for funds here and there. And then Michael gets vitiligo. We talk a lot on the podcast about how it was perceived in the black community and how rumors persisted and how you have to break down the mythology of what really happened. So as kids growing up in the 90s, we always heard Michael Jackson's bleaching his skin and you almost sort of took it as fact. Uh, but once you realize he has this disease and why he might have used bleaching uh, creams or, or what have you um, as remedies to kind of even that out, I think um, it makes that health scare like even more complex to kind of unpack like somebody going through this personally and now you're in front of the world stage. And so I'm wondering, you know, how you kind of um, uh, came to some conclusions on how vitiligo affected Michael. You did have a section in the book where you talked about Jimmy Ruffin thinking that Michael was trying to choose proximity to whiteness. And so uh, we, we try to unpack that a lot because that stigma kind of circulates Michael. And so what did you walk away learning about his experience and how other people were perceiving him that were closer to him and had relationships with him in that period? Yes, um, I will answer that question. But first, I want to say that I forgot to mention Speed Demon in the previous context, which is oh, like, please oh, do the greatest Michael Jackson punk rock song ever. And oh yeah, I, I mean, I, I love that song. I mean, the speed—it's right there in the yeah. name. You know, it's uh -huh. like, it's just like take a rock and roll song and speed it up a hundred times, and that's yeah. punk rock. And then there's sort of like this angry yawp to it of like yeah. Anyway, sorry, let's move on to vitiligo. Um, but I had to say that, you know, the vitiligo thing, um, in the end, I, I mean, I, I acknowledge all the points of views that you just referred to and sort of the complicated race issues that Michael bleaching his skin brought up as sort of the, the most famous, perhaps, um, black person in the world at that time, you know, is, is kind of transforming into a white person in, in the public view you know, before people's eyes, or that, at least that's the way people interpreted it. And that, you know, you, you brought it up yourself. Is he turning his back on the, on the black community? I mean, I'm white, so I, I can't completely hundred percent answer, you know, the, the anger or, or other emotions that, that um, people in the black community were feeling in response to this. Uh, Greg Tate wrote very well um, in the village voice and elsewhere about, about sort of like what he saw as a, as a betrayal, as I recall. I decided to go into it purely sort of looking at Michael's words. And sometimes you can't really trust Michael's words, you know, as we've, as we've discussed, because he was very careful about his PR. But in this case, it's pretty well documented. The autopsy actually showed that he legitimately did have vitiligo and it was something that was all over his skin and it was very present. And Michael said in interviews, you know, it was easier for me to sort of turn my skin since I'm such a public figure you know, I, I had to deal with my hands and I had to deal with my face and all the all the other parts of me that people see. Um, it was just easier to do that than it was to sort of match a skin tone every time with makeup or whatever. 
I actually talked to, by coincidence, I talked to a guy who knew Michael who had vitiligo. And I forget his name. Um, it's in the book, but he was a musician. He was a classical musician, I think, who worked on the Dangerous album. Dangerous, yeah. I can't remember his name, but yeah, I remember reading yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I was surprised. Like, I was going through my thing where I talked to everybody in the liner notes. And uh, we were just talking about music. And he said, oh, by the way, I have vitiligo too. And um, and I said, really? And he said, yeah. And so Michael and I talked about that. And and that so a lot of what I wrote there was influenced by that conversation with that particular source. And so I think that when you think about that in that way, like Michael being having this incredible high profile, everyone's paying attention to him. It makes more sense for him to do that, being the kind of vain person, honestly, who, you know, sometimes has a twisted way of thinking about what the world thinks of him and what he should look like to the world. I bought it. You know, I just kind of said, yeah, it's vitiligo. I acknowledged some of those issues about race that people had discussed and gave them credibility because I think they're important. But I think in the end, the facts, the most persuasive facts to me were on the surface, what Michael said was true there. Yeah. And I think so we talked about on our prior podcast about Dangerous. Um, I talked to my mom about who is uh, just had a birthday and turned 68. I talked to her about Michael Jackson, her growing up in this period and what she thought seeing him change. And her response was, well, we loved him and we didn't understand why he wanted it seemed to us to not be black or what he thought was so wrong with himself because we thought he was beautiful and we didn't know. And so we just thought he didn't want to be who he was. And then he came out with, you know, his explanation, but even then there was a large segment who just didn't believe him. And what's more incredible is there's a whole autopsy report and people still some people don't believe that he really had this disease. So it's an interesting sort of inflection point in his life that impacts his career. Um, And he chose the road he did, but it came with its own consequences. And so it's interesting to hear how people piece that together because you have Black or White, that song that comes out, and people use that to play off of this thing, right? Well, are you Black or White? Um, And, you know... Dealing with those different ideas and different perspectives from people who knew him, you can't discount them. But like you said, you go back to the fact that he did have this, period. Um, And so all these other things that attenuate that fact are what they are. But the fact is he did have this disorder. I think that's right. And, you know, I am not going to argue against your mom. (laughs) Like, I think that that is a... Please don't, because I don't want to have to uh, take up for you, Steve, because... um, I'm still scared of her. So let's not do that. <laughs> uh, Same. I mean, it'd probably be a more interesting debate if she were here, but, um, <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, I, I take that very credibly and, and I hear that. And I guess my point, the one thing I would add to that would be, you know, I make the point in the book that others have made, which is Michael did not do a very good job as the world's most famous person for many years, who was an incredibly influential pop culture figure of being honest with the public. Sometimes he was, sometimes he wasn't. You know, when he talked about vitiligo, I think he was being honest. Um, Although he only mentioned it a few times. When he talked about, you know, his facial surgery, I think he was not always being honest. And so that confused people. You know, people would say, well, Michael's saying this, but clearly that's not true. 
And so when he needed people to believe him later, I mean, that, that now we're getting to other territory, you know, suddenly he couldn't fall back on, well, I've been honest with you all these, all these years. Right. And so, you know, who am I to say, like, like if you're a celebrity and you're somebody in the public and all these strangers, journalists are trying to ask you questions and putting you into like not very flattering, hostile tabloid stories, you might lie your ass off as well. Right. <laughs> you know, who knows in that position? Almost none of us can relate to that. I, I want to go into like the later years here. The child abuse accusations happen. Michael begins a slippery slope still continues to try to create content history invincible happens and then we hit this wall in 2002 um michael begins to speak about sony sabotage and that happens uh in 2002 after invincibles basically the entire album rollout kind of like implodes michael gets one video out of it 2002, he he accuses them of sabotage. 2003, February 2003, we get the Bashir doc. February 2004, Janet Super Bowl happens. January 2005, we're in court with the Arvizo case. I want to talk about this sandwich of every year, it seems like the Jackson family gets smacked back to back to back. And so we get to this point where Janet and Michael have their backs against the wall. And we talked a bit earlier about the divide and conquer that Joseph always thought was happening with his family, whether it was with Motown and he thought he had to take them to CBS and then CBS turning against them and then the management, they actually end up with their backs against the wall and everyone's being blackballed from this industry. What did you unpack about that period of the Jackson family life and how it affected the end of Michael's life through 2009? Yeah. um, It's hard to say uh, about the Jackson family. I didn't have as great sources within the rest of the family during that period, but um, you know, the, the Michael period during this time, you know, I think was mostly a sad period. I think that he was still devastated from the child molestation accusations. And that led to a period of, um, I mean, honestly, he, he was dealing with some drug issues, you know, and they, they were often not from the point of the, of the um, Pepsi commercial accident where his hair caught on fire. You know, that was when the the idea of painkillers kind of came into his life. And then he was off them for a long, long time. And then he was on again and off again and on again. And that whole period that you're talking about was sort of like he was on, he was off. And his family kept trying to intervene. You know, Randy shows up at his house a bunch of times. They try to do interventions. And Michael kind of pushes them away, which, which you know, I think was kind of a commentary on his family because by this point in his life, he doesn't trust them at all. Some part was for good reason, because they behaved, certainly Joe, in a way that was untrustworthy, a lot of people in his family, and some for bad reasons, because I think his family kind of saw that he had these drug issues and were trying to help in their own way. And he was sort of like behaving like people who deal with drugs or have drug addictions do, which is to push people away. So it's a very complicated and difficult period for him. And and the period, the thing that strikes me about this period, as you just said, was post-invincible he basically stops recording music for album projects, although he would kind of take it up again later in, in scattershot ways. Um, and he basically stops for the most part going on tour. Um, you know, there are these couple of German shows and I believe the one where the, 
the bridge drops and he injures his back, you yeah. know, that, that video yeah. is on YouTube. But that was a really important event. Like it didn't seem like it at the time. We didn't hear much about it. But in retrospect, that was a crucially important event, injured him in a way that he was in even more pain than he had been physically. And that led to perhaps even more dependence on painkillers and, and other drugs. Um, and if you watch that video now, like, God, it's an incredible video. It's like, it's like. He watch- immediately howled and then kept performing. He kept yeah. performing. Yeah. It's yeah. incredible. And it's like, you know, you watch it. I could see where people in the audience would go, oh, is this part of the show? Like, I think that's a natural reaction. I don't mm-hmm. think monster because that's the way he behaved. But if you, if you watch it, knowing what we know actually happened there, it's, it's a horror video. It's, I mean, he drops from such a high height and then it's so sad to watch him continue the performance. Cause that's what he has to do, you know, anyway, but, but I think all of those things led to a, a very dark period for the most part in his life. Um, you know, with, with some exceptions, like he's, he's, Certainly, he's starting a family during this period, so that there was, and he's he has kids, and and you know that's a whole different part of the story, but um, but that was a happy happiness for him, and that was perhaps part of the reason on a good side that he gave up these musical endeavors or or downplayed them, um, but overall, I think that that period led to, you know, some financial, severe financial problems, some severe physical problems. And even some severe emotional or or drug problems that led to the the final phase. And Steve, we got two more questions for you, but one leads right into what you just were talking about, which is this financial problems. You spent a good part of your book, and I thought it was really good. If fans haven't read it, we we are certainly, of course, recommending read this book. It will suck you in. You talk about how by the time the 30th anniversary came around, Michael was in financial distress in many ways. And he was convinced by an old friend, David Guest, to do the shows because of the financial incentive that would come from doing it. And we still know there were complications with just doing the shows, right? Do you think that the 30th anniversary concert marked Michael Jackson's start to performing primarily for money rather than passion? Yeah. Um, does he start performing for money? Uh it's hard to say. I mean, I'm sure he money went into that, but I also think that probably some persuasion persuasion went into that from his family. You know, like like the brothers wanted to reunite, and they probably needed money too. Yeah. So I I don't I'm not sure he did need money, but I don't think he was he was explicitly motivated by money at that time because I don't think he felt like he needed money. Like mm-hmm. all the people around him were trying to say, Michael, like. You're way in debt here. You're paying every, you know, all your expenses, you're paying tens of millions of dollars every year just yeah. to like pay the interest on this debt. And he yeah. was like, Yeah, well, I don't care. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm not sure that he personally did this, did these shows because, well, I need money. Absolutely. It's interesting you say that because there's a part in your book where you go, I think it's like in the history era, Michael goes, who are those folks? And somebody says, those are the dancers. Somebody, who are those folks? Those are the lighting people. He says, who's those folks? And he goes, somebody goes, oh, those are the accountants. He says, send those away. Right. <laughs> you I know, was like, really happy with that quote. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
So yeah. it's like money did become this big thing and he was not doing the numbers he used to do because times change and everyone has a peak and a decline. And in some ways, maybe he was unrealistic in accepting he was in a decline commercially, even though his art continued to be uh, very interesting and profitable monetarily and sonically for his fans and people who would li- who were listening to music. So that was kind of an interesting period where money becomes this thing, whereas in the 80s, money is almost like uh, an, an abstract idea. It's like, yeah, we got to have it, but we got it, you know? And yeah, we, you know what I mean? But versus the 90s and early 2000s, it becomes, no, we didn't have to pay attention, even though Sony is still giving him the 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 the, the arms and legs to spin. Well, I think that, um, again, I would say that the people around Michael and he kept firing them. So it was like for a while, he had a pretty stable team of John Branca, the lawyer, and Frank DeLeo, the manager, and yep. some others. Um, and they were, you know, relatively keeping the whole operation in a, into discipline. Quincy Jones may have helped with that somewhat too. Mm-hmm. Um, but then later we get into this period that you're talking about where Michael is like, he would hire these people. He had these German guys. He had all kinds of, Randy was his manager for a while and he had all these people coming in and every one of them eventually would say, Hey, Michael, you got to stop spending so much money. You yeah. got You can't go on these shopping sprees anymore. The ones, you know, all that stuff we saw in the Martin Bashir documentary where he goes, yeah. you know, like you can't do that anymore, Michael. And then yeah. he was, okay, you're fired. So for Michael during this period, like money was abstract and he, it was part of his, you know, my theory in the book and others have said this, like, I felt like Michael at a certain point felt like his whole life was limitless. He was not limited by finances. He was not limited by race. He was not limited by music. Uh, he, he was not limited by uh, facial structure. You know, <laughs> I, I feel like that certainly applied to money. And he, I don't think he ever really came back to sort of, well, I better cut it back. And um, and see, we got a final question for you, and then we want you to tell everybody um, where they can find your book. Obviously, they can find it online on Amazon, different places, but we want to be very explicit of where they can pick it up. But our final question for you is that Michael Jackson had many scandals during his lifetime and certainly after his lifetime. And he weathered all those storms, honestly, during his lifetime and his estate and his legacy has weathered those storms after. Why is his music so durable and his legacy so everlasting? Yeah, I mean, that's the question at the heart of the book, you know, like, like, I mean, that's what I was trying to get at. He's he's a genius and he created incredibly enduring pop music. And not and and it it, uh, it transcended pop music, you know. I think that uh, centuries to come, the way we listen to Mozart, we're probably going to be listening to Thriller and Off the Wall and a lot of the others too. It, it's funny that you say that. I've done stories for Billboard, you know, after Leaving Neverland came out about sort of like, are people still listening to the old Michael Jackson stuff? For example, to to name a different example, like R. Kelly got canceled basically. Right. He he um, I, I haven't paid attention recently. I think the streaming numbers are still OK on him, but radio stopped playing him completely. They were like, we don't want to deal with this guy. He was arrested for for, you know, sexual abuse. But radio did not stop playing Michael Jackson. You can turn on any radio station and you're still going to hear Beat It and Billie Jean and don't stop till you get enough and so forth. His music, some people's music just transcends that. 
I mean, we still listen to, and now we're getting into the sort of issue of like, do you judge the art or do you judge the artist? Right. That's a whole separate issue. Um, but like we still, people still listen to Wagner and that dude was an anti-Semite who, you know, influenced Hitler and the Holocaust, you know, yeah. Like, yeah. like we should not be listening to Wagner purely based on the merits of his personality. We should cancel that dude forever. And yet his music perseveres. Why? Because I mean, I'm Jewish and I have to admit it's great music, you know, um, and, and the same is true with Michael. But then you get in. I mean, when we talk about it this way, you have to get into sort of, did he do it? And we haven't really talked about that that much yet. So thank you. But um, so uh, it's it's sort of hard to answer that question. Like, do, does he transcend all this bad stuff before we talk about, like, was it the stuff that he did really true and was it really bad? And you know what? If it's everyone who's going to listen to this podcast and you're wondering what does Steve think about those topics, you're not going to find it on this podcast, but maybe <laughs> later you find out what Steve thinks because he did such a thorough research of this topic that's not on this, but maybe another time we'll we'll get Steve to come back and talk to us. Steve Knopper, thank you so, so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule. I cannot say thank you enough for coming on the Black Jackson Estate podcast. We could not have asked for a better writer to come on and talk about this stuff. I used to tell, I told you this in the email, cause it's true. I would tell Ashley and uh, my sister who's not on, this guy, Steve Knopper wrote this book. You know, I would quote it. I've quoted you throughout the podcast. So if anyone's listened to us, they've already heard me quoting your phenomenal book. I'm like, you know, Steve wrote this in his book. He he had so many sources. I think I first read your book in 2018. And um, at that time I was a right out of law school and I was practicing at a firm and I had to travel a lot to go to court. And so I put on, put on audiobooks and your audiobook was one that I put on I'm telling you, man, if I wasn't paying attention to the road, like you took me to another place, like uh-huh. it was such a great, and it still is, and this is my second time reading it, a great read. And I certainly recommend it to everyone who has an interest in music and black music and Michael Jackson and pop music and world music, American music, that history. This is a, a phenomenal book to pick up, especially in entering into a season where you may have more time at home. This is a great book. And so thank you so much, Steve, for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. It Thanks, is so Steve. thank you so much for having me. Your questions were amazing. I'm going to listen to your podcast much more frequently. And may I say that it is so refreshing that sort of, as you can imagine, I've done a lot of interviews about this book over the years. And, um, you know, people want to know, did he do it? Was he really a child molester? This and what did he do to his nose? And and I'm happy to, I can talk about that stuff. But like, what I really want to talk about is like, how did the drummer on Dancing Machine come up with the bump, a bump at the beginning? Yeah. Like, that's what I want to talk about. <laughs> you did I the, love I that in the audio book. Yeah, oh, he did wow. the onomatopoeia in the book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So anyway, I, I am really delighted to to hear your questions. And and you obviously are both so, so smart about this topic that it's it's really refreshing. So thank you so much for for doing this interview. Thank you, Steve. It's been such a pleasure. We really enjoyed ourselves and we know our listeners are going to enjoy this podcast so much. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great. I like songs that touch the heart and that stay with a person for a lifetime. And that's what's important to me and to the people. And that's what I'm here for. And I get things done the way I want them to be done. Are you willful? In what way? I mean, are you, you have your own ideas of what you want to do and you want, you're oh, going to yeah. do them? Oh, yeah. I deal through feeling. And then you want to act on it. Yeah. And what you enjoy the most 
about being on stage is? It's a great question. So I feel I'm doing my job, and that's what makes me happy. So we're getting, we're feeding one another, and it's a wonderful thing. I let things create themselves. So that's meant to be, it'll happen. And I believe in the force.